Sanjeev, let me welcome you to this session and thank you for doing this for IMA. I know when I contacted you the first time, you were traveling extensively, but uh, you were kind enough to agree to a date and I warmly welcome you to this National Leadership Conclave. Uh, all of you all know Sanjeev, you know, I don't need to introduce you. And he wears so many hats. He's an outstanding historian. He's had very impressive career in the financial sector. He has written four outstanding books, at least two of which I have read. I was fortunate enough to moderate a session with him in my own state of Goa. And that's where I picked up two of his books and I found them to be extremely interesting. He's also played a very, very key role in and is still continues to do as a key member of the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council. Earlier, he was the principal economic advisor to the finance ministry. He's also played an extremely important role in our country's interaction with both OECD and G7 and has been a co-chair of the G20 Global Action Plan to coordinate our response to the dreaded COVID disease. As I said, he has also had a very impressive financial career background. He was the global strategist and managing director at Deutsche Bank, also equally excelled in the field of academics. He has been a visiting professor and scholar at Oxford University, an adjunct fellow at Singapore's Institute of Policy Studies, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, and also a visiting professor at the JNU. Recent years, as I said, he has added another, uh, another arrow to his quiver in the form of history writing. He has produced outstanding books on India's recent and ancient past, the topic which is of discussion today and the relevance of history. Some of his books that I would like to mention is India's Renaissance, India's Rise After a Thousand Years of Decline, Land of the Seven Rivers, A Brief History of India's Geography, The Ocean of Churn, How the Indian Ocean Shaped Human History, and The Revolutionaries, The Other Story of How India Won Its Freedom. In all his books, he's done, touched upon a very important point and he's questioned the legacy of historical narratives and offered alternative histories of India's origin, evolution, territory and its people. Actually, I find that all his books are very timely and it's an, as we are all witnessing, an unprecedented contest for the past and future. I don't know and we'll have to probe more into and ask Sanjeev his opinion why so many countries are, has so much craze about its history and its past and are trying to reconcile their present with the past, admit a competition for true history among their constituent groups. Obviously, we all find that history is important, legacy is important, but it will be very interesting to know from Sanjeev his take of how one can be sure of history and why history matters to the future of the nation. I will stop here and ask Sanjeev to give a few opening comments and then we will have the Q&A session and time permitting, we will all ask you for your questions. Thank you so much and welcome Sanjeev again. Thank you, Srinivas. Um, and thank you to uh, Aima for inviting me yet again and uh, to one of your sessions. 
Um, it's good to see many friendly faces here. Uh, I have known several of you for many, many years uh, from my uh, life in the financial sector and through my last several years in the government. Uh, the topic that has been chosen for me uh, is uh, to speak about uh, why history matters uh, to the future. And one may well ask, why is it that uh, an economist should come to a corporate management conference and talk about history? So I think, let me get that out of the way as a way to, and in fact, that may be a good place to start this conversation. Well, I think there are three major reasons why you want to um, bring up history in an event like this. First and foremost, as the old dictum goes, those who do not read history are condemned to repeat it. What this dictum doesn't mean that history just is a repetition over and over again. Um, but there are patterns. And in fact, as Mark Twain once quipped, that hit, while hit, history may not repeat itself, it certainly rhymes. What he meant to say is that there are patterns in history. And when you are talking about history, we usually mean national history or the history of a civilization or a city or something like that. So think of it as data, long-range data. All of you in your corporate life deal with data. You deal with annual data. You deal with quarterly data. And you try to work out certain patterns, presumably learning from these patterns to be able to improve into the future. This is important. But even in the life of a nation or a civilization, this is also true. And history really is data about the past. It's long-range data over hundreds of years or thousands of years or whatever length of history you want to look at. And it is important to understand that, as I said, in order not to repeat the mistakes. And this is particularly true for, an Indi uh, for a country like India, which has such a long history and a lot of it is a very painful history of invasion, occupation, colonization, and so on. So if you don't want to repeat those things, it's important to learn history. Number two, it is important not only that some small group of specialists learn history, but there is a generalized understanding of at least the facts of history. You may interpret them in somewhat different ways, at an individual level, but there has to be, if you want a nation or any large group of people, a general understanding and acceptance of certain facts of history. Because again, the corollary to the first rule is the second, because if only a very small group of people know the history, then the danger is that that small group will sit around and watch the rest of the people repeat history. So, it's no point in going through that, and therefore it is important that we teach this history on a wider basis to future generations. It is in some ways an accumulation of knowledge, and that too must be passed on. There is a third rule to our understanding of history, and which is this. 
and here we come to a more nuanced and complex point, which is that if you don't write your own history, and particularly when you are dealing with something as important as the future of a country or a civilization or something, a large uh, project, then be clear that if you don't write your history, somebody else will write it for you. There is an African proverb which says that till the story of the, sorry, till the lions do not have their own storytellers, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So if you, as I said, do not have the time or energy or interest of writing your history, do not think you are going to be left alone. Somebody else is going to stand up there and deconstruct you and write your narrative for you. And this is indeed that has happened to us many times in the past. Many Indians get very excited that the British having colonized India took such a great interest in our history. Well, of course they did. There is no better way to colonize a people thoroughly than to take control of the way they think of themselves. This is why even 75 years after independence, we still talk about decolonization. Because in some ways, we ended up seeing ourselves from a framework of thinking that somebody else set for us. Now, having set these three points down, let me now take this into the area of leadership, whether it's in the corporate leadership or a national political leadership and so on. Why is this important to have this discussion for you as well? Not merely as stakeholders in this country, but even in your own, uh, when you are trying to run your own companies or industries. Because in the end, remember that we live in such a complex, changing, uncertain world. We need to have a framework or a narrative framework in which we get everybody to buy into in order to be able to pull in a certain direction. That narrative building, in a sense, is leadership. That is what leadership is about. right? In the end, if you dig deep enough, all the sessions that you did all day were ultimately about this. So this requires you to have a shared understanding of, of who you are. And that, in some way, and, and one ingredient of that is a shared understanding of your history. I'm not saying you have to agree at every little point, but a general shared understanding of that history is a part of the general shared values, the general shared culture that you want to have in order to get any group of people to pull in the same direction. So, in some ways, when you are doing leadership at every level, you are in some ways creating that framework. And so, History is a very important part of doing that when you are dealing with a nation or even a state or even a city. The large masses of people have to have a shared understanding of who they are. Now, given this broader context, let us come to the conversations that we are having today and into the future. I am going to start with something which is not history. Then I will come back to history. You see, 
history is not about just the past. We are ourselves living history. One day people will look back in what we thought, what we said, why we said, and that will also become a part of history. And therefore, we need to think about how these narratives, these frameworks of understanding are being generated as we speak. And in this context, let me show you how, and I've been a part of this conversation, show you how as we emerge as a major global power, how a large amount of effort will get put into setting the narrative for us so that we are guided into certain directions, pathways of growth. So, for example, you may see there are all these suddenly, this plethora of think tanks who are creating these indices. Democracy Index, Happiness Index, Hunger Index, etc., etc. And in all of them, without fail, we do curiously badly. Have you noticed this? You know, there was one of these major think tanks, global think tanks, I think it's called VDEM, it's a Sweden-based think tank. It issued a few months ago a academic freedom index. And in that academic freedom index, not only are we below Pakistan, we are even below Afghanistan. Now, obviously, this is not even a pretense of trying to set a objective truth. What they are trying to do is to frame us in a particular way in order to manipulate us. And this is not something that is new today. This has been going on from the beginning of time. What they are trying to do is that only if we behave in a particular pattern will we be accepted as a democracy. Now if you go and look at the democracy index, by the way I have written several articles and working papers on this issue, so you can get into the details, but it's quite interesting how it is set up. So if you go and look at, say, the democracy index, and look at the first four or five uh, countries that the democracy index considers to be the best democracy in the world, in that list we are 108 out of 140. So the world's largest democracy on the democracy index comes out at 108 out of 140. But who are the first five? First five democracies in the world are Kingdom of Norway, Kingdom of Denmark, Kingdom of Sweden, Kingdom of uh, Netherlands, and the United Kingdom. In other words, being a republic is bad for democracy. That's the main finding of this report. So, obviously, there are certain ways in which it is set up. And you will be told this story in a particular way. And by the way, this is not just about these perception-based indices about happiness index and so on. In fact, uh, Nassim Taleb uh, tweeted one very interesting uh, 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 world map, which was quite funny, in which he colored different countries according to where they rank on the happiness index. And then he also put in there their suicide rates. There is an absolute perfect correlation. So the joke that went around is the best way of happen to reach happiness at a national scale is to allow the unhappy to kill themselves off. So this is the absurdity with which these narratives are set. 
Now you may argue, no, no, this is very bad, we should ignore it and so on. No, you cannot ignore this. Because what happens is, this sort of thing then gets slowly taken into things that have concrete impact. One of those things that is you may be already facing is something called the ESG norms. The environment, social and governance norms. Now if you, it's, I have nothing against being socially responsible, environmentally responsible or taking governance seriously. But what happens is that these subjective things are all taken to create a particular narrative. So, you know, there are these advocate groups. Very often these are basically non-government organizations of various kinds who will then impose on you certain norms for which in order to grade you up or down, they will first of all charge money. But on a grander scale, they will actually use it to manipulate you in a particular direction. And you can already, many of you may be facing this if you are dealing with uh, investments or trade in, uh, in places like Europe. Be under no illusion that this is a form of neocolonization. Not very different from the way, for example, the British were writing our history. So what, were the, what was the problem the British had when they occupied this country? There were a small number of obviously different looking people, white people, who had come and occupied a large and established country with a long history. And they needed to basically justify their rule. So what they did is said, yes, you know, you guys have a long and established history, but that great civilization that you are proud of, do remember that it was given to you by other white people called the Aryans who came and gave it, gifted it to you. So all we are doing really is doing a software update. And therefore we have a right to rule over you. There has never been any sign in the archaeology, in the Vedic texts or other texts, or even in the genetics of any such invasion. And yet to this day, by the way, the Aryan invasion is hardwired in a lot of the textbooks and other conversations that we have. So, before I pass it back to you, let the point I'm making here is, is narrative building is important. It is important at the national level. It's important at the corporate level. Much of it, creating a convincing narrative which is based on facts is an important part of leadership. And most importantly, if you are not doing it, your enemies will do it for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sanjeev, for setting that both tone and context of the debate that is going to follow. And I think a uh, lot of questions must have emerged in the audience's mind and also on, in my mind. I'd like to start with a basic question, and that is, you know, some say that history like GDP is anything that you want to be. And in some form, you covered that when the British wrote it the way they wanted it. And you know, according to you, because you're both uh, a historian and an economist, uh, what what's your view on the role of guesswork and subjectivity in all these historical narratives? See, it's like this. <clears throat> Everybody is allowed their opinions, but they are not allowed their own facts. Now, we live in a world that is partly objective and partly subjective. 
just because you can measure the objective part does not mean the subjective part is not important, it doesn't exist. And just because there are a large number of subjective things to talk about doesn't mean that objective things do not exist as well. Combining these two elements is what allows us to make sense of the world. Now, the fact that two economists may disagree or two historians may disagree about certain facts is not surprising. All you have to do is to put on your television and you will see that we do not even agree on what happened yesterday. So it shouldn't be very surprising that historians disagree on what happened 2000 years ago. Similarly, that economists may disagree on various explanations for certain things happening or not happening. But that does not mean that there are no objective facts at all. There is a certain amount of things that we know or primary evidence that exists. So, for example, when you calculate GDP, yes, there are a lot of assumptions that are made in calculating GDP. GDP is not some God-given number. It is basically a convention. It's a convention that's not even very old. It emerged really after the Second World War and became popularized only in the 1950s. So, it is a convention that has emerged in relatively recent times. And there are lots of well-known problems with calculating GDP. But it provides a good rule of thumb or guide about the amount of economic activity that is happening in an economy. I'm not saying it's a perfect measure. There are it it it, it ignores many other costs you may be the environmental cost or social costs you may be uh, having to bear as a result of higher economic growth. But it does provide some measure. And while you can find other ways of measuring human development or human uh, uh, progress, and others have tried to you know, create things like, for example, the Human Development Index and so on. But the fact of the matter is, every one of those other indices is so strongly correlated to GDP that you might as well just go with GDP because it's it's relatively easier to calculate and it correlates with many other things we do. For example, our tax system, uh, profitability of of organize uh, of uh, uh, the corporate sector, uh, and many other things can be kind of correlated to this one measure, which is consequently a summary. As long as you understand that this is a summary and understand its weaknesses. It remains a useful way to think about the world. By the way, I can even say that about corporate accounts. Yeah, corporate accounts in the end is an opinion. However, that does not mean profitability is a completely made up thing. Within some, uh, within certain set of conventions of the double entry bookkeeping system, we arrive at a number that is generally found to be um, a reasonable way to think about the world. Now, there are many fuzzy things in there as well. I mean, people value, uh, for example, reputation. Um, yeah, it's a very fuzzy thing. Or, you know, when buying and selling of unlisted companies happen, um, there's a lot of fuzziness about what the valuation is going to be. But with that constraint, we are able to function. So the same is true of GDP. 
and the same is true of history uh you said in your opening comments and also have i've seen you argue many a times that the historical narratives in this country suffer from both post colonial and colonial bias how what would you recommend how do how does one really come out of this and ensure that more objectivity is achieved in both our history making and taking so as i said uh, we all have a right to our opinions we don't have a right to our facts so i don't have any problem with there being multiple reasonable interpretation of the facts one of the problems with the indian history narrative particularly the textbooks we teach to our children is the facts themselves are actually disputable and in fact are blatantly wrong in many cases so since uh, more recent histories maybe of post colonial history or maybe uh 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 you know uh, uh, mughals and so on is so contentious let me show you somebody you may think is un- not contentious how the history of that person can be completely uh, uh questioned and is possibly completely fabricated emperor ashoka yeah everybody loves emperor ashoka nice chap he went and carried out genocide in uh odisha but then you know he re- he became a pacifist a buddhist and general good body at large now the problem with this story is this story of his regret after kalinga and his conversion to buddhism sadly is entirely made up there is no evidence to this at all i've written about it in one of my books called the ocean of churn to the extent evidence exists the evidence is the following that he converted to buddhism 4 years before kalinga two he did carry out genocide in kalinga that is a known fact because he writes about it himself but the fact of his regret is also somewhat fuzzy there is no ins- none of these ins- he has several inscriptions in odisha but none of the inscriptions in odisha mention any regret the inscription in which he does mention some regret is in places that are now in actually in pakistan and in that inscription where he does say you know i went to i invaded kalinga so many 100000 people died so many 100000 got injured so many people imprisoned and so on then that is the one that you read in a history books what people don't tell you is like the paragraph immediately afterwards which says you forest tribes notwithstanding the regret i am having of doing that to those chaps i will do the same thing to you if you behave badly this is no pacifist so this idea that he became a pacifist is also complete garbage in fact much of the facts of ashoka's life is other than his inscriptions which are by the way very few you can you can read all his inscriptions uh, in 20 minutes there are just a few of them and they say have very limited things to say so much much of what about his life is made up is comes from buddhist texts and it's very clear from these buddhist texts particularly sri lankan buddhist texts where it's very clear that well after he became a buddhist and well after uh, the kalinga war and so called regret etc he was carrying out major massacres of jains major massacres of a sect called ajivikas in bengal 
and so on and so forth. So this idea that he became a pacifist is also garbage. Now after I tell all of this, say yeah, yeah, okay, but you know, you know, all great emperors do this kind of violent thing, but he was a great emperor, right? So let me also point out, this is also suspect. First of all, remember, this empire was not created by Ashoka. It was created by his grandfather, Chandragupta Maurya. It was then looked after for several decades by his father, Bindusar. Ashoka was not the person who was supposed to inherit this. When Bindusara died, Ashoka grabbed the crown from and killed 99 of his brothers and cousins in order to become king. Then as I mentioned, he did not become a pacifist at all. And there were many rebellions in his empire. And we have evidence that by the time he died, his empire was rapidly collapsing. The southern half of his empire spun off into the Satvahana empire within years of his death. The Kalinga became a separate king, went back to being a separate king within a few years of him becoming a king. One of his sons or grandsons split off in Kashmir. And so a rump of the Mauryan empire remained in the Gangetic plains for a couple of generations and then that too collapsed. So a point I'm making to you is that he he did not create the Mauryan empire. He usurped it and the empire collapsed, was already collapsing while he was alive and completely collapsed within a few years of him dying. So here is a king who destroyed a great empire which seemed to have been functioning rather well. There is no evidence of him having ever become a pacifist but plenty of evidence of him carrying out lots of genocide. So we have no idea why he is considered such a great king in our history books. I have based all of this story that I have told you on hard facts. I wrote all of this a decade ago in a book called The Ocean of Churn. I, when I wrote it I thought many mainstream historians would come and question me I'm still waiting. That was uh, really very interesting because as a school-going kid, we used to always think of Ashoka as one of the best rulers that has done India good. Uh, coming to a similar sort of an issue, you know, you've talked about uh, how Indian freedom struggle, which we generally believe came from Ahimsa or the non-violent struggle that at least we were thought about. In your book, Revolutionaries, the other story of how Indian freedom was won, uh, you actually have argued that it has not come through non-violence, but it has come through guns rather than Satyagraha. Could you just share some insights into that? So, again, the uh, conventional history writing about this country will give you the impression that uh, we gently suggested to the British to leave and they politely left. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, our freedom struggle is a very bloody one, with many implications coming down right to this day. There is, it, it is a history of continuous armed resistance, and I'm not talking about the early armed resistance of the Marathas, the Sikhs, and uh, the Sanyasi revolution, the polygars, and so on. That happened in the 18th and 19th century. 
And that cycle of resistance, I agree, came to an end in 1857 when all the old elites were basically there, they were basically put down. But that does not mean that the flame of armed resistance died out. There was something called the revolutionary movement, which from around about 1900 to 1946 kept up a continuous armed resistance to the British. And it had a very important part in putting up uh, uh, to the the sequence of events, not merely uh, in terms of how the British reacted, but it is important to remember that this armed, uh, armed revolutionary group were an important part even within the Congress. This has been forgotten. And they were important enough that in 1937-38, Netaji was actually able to win an election against the Gandhians inside the Congress. So do remember that the revolutionaries were an important part inside the Congress, not just generally more outside. They also involved tens of thousands of people. Uh, they had branches in across the world from California to Germany to Japan to Italy uh, to Singapore. All kinds of places where the revolutionaries had uh, large numbers. Inside India they had large networks. But the impression you get, you know, you know, you know, one day Bhagat Singh got up and threw a bomb in the assembly. Some random person shot somebody else. So, deliberately the story has been told to you about, you know, there were these individual acts of bravery, but they didn't add up to anything. But if you read the book Revolutionaries, you will discover that this is a deliberate misrepresentation of what the revolutionaries were doing. This was a large movement with clear organization, clear objectives, involving tens of thousands of people. And as I mentioned, they were important even within the Congress. And many of the things they did had a very big role in leading to Indian independence. And in fact, seen from the perspective of the revolutionaries themselves, uh, you know, events like, for example, the 1946 Naval Revolt and so on, that is really the reason India gets its freedom. Now, I'm not here to say that the nonviolent movement did not have any role at all, but I do want to tell you that the other movement had at least as much a role in getting us freedom. It's a story that has unfortunately been written out of our history books and it needs to be brought back in. And I think I really enjoyed moderating the session. Thank you. Thank you very much. 